Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome back uh, to the New Books uh, in Economic and Business History, uh, a new uh, podcast channel here on the New Books Network. Um, I'm Ghassan Moazin, uh, one of the hosts uh, on the channel. And uh, today uh, we'll be talking uh, to Dr. John D. Wong, uh, an associate professor at the University of Hong Kong. And we'll be talking about his uh, recent book uh, called Global Trade uh, in the 19th Century, uh, The House of Hokwa and the Canton System, uh, which came out with uh, Cambridge University Press and is a fascinating study uh, of China's global trade connections uh, during the late 18th uh, and early 19th century, both with Europe uh, and the United States. So, uh, John, welcome uh, to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Um, so to start off, I, uh, as always, um, uh, I wanted to ask you, sort of before we dig into the book more specifically, um, I wanted to ask you um, how you actually came uh, to the study of modern China uh, and global trade, um, how we ended up studying uh, this particular area uh, of history. Well, that's a great question. Uh, usually when we talk about our careers, we make it sound very um logical that it is the uh, path of progression that takes us here. But then in reality, there are lots of twists and turns. There certainly were plenty in my case. And in my situation, I have become a business historian by way of economics, uh, career investment, and uh, study of history. Um, I think that background has actually been quite helpful because it reminds me of contingencies when I do my own uh, writing of history. But then if we were to think about work that I've done, what uh, one thing seems to have remained constant, and that's my interest in Hong Kong and the Pearl River Delta area, now reincarnated as the Greater Bay Area. Maybe I can just uh, give you a little bit more details about uh, this, this path. Uh, I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and like any good native child of this city, I pursued a pragmatic career-oriented path. Um, so I left Hong Kong to, to go to school in the U.S., and there I studied economics. I did what was expected of me, uh, investment banking and then investment management for a while. But then in my 30s, I decided to pursue something more intellectually stimulating. So I signed up for evening classes uh, where I lived and chanced upon a course offered by the late uh, Philip Kuhn. For that class, we, we read his book, Soul Stealers, and I was quite inspired by his, his brand of um, history writing as storytelling. And uh, as, I, as I worked with him, I also um, developed an interest in studying um, the Chinese diaspora or overseas Chinese. And at that point, I decided to go back to school full time. And once I was back in school, um, it was actually wonderful, uh, but yet at the same time, a little bit bewildering um, because I was uh, blessed with uh, the breadth of courses offered um, in graduate school, did everything from early China to more contemporary history of China. In fact, my first publication um, was on early China, and in that I examined uh, territorial treatises in the Warring States um, era and to explore how early thinkers imagined the expense of the emerging empire and how they talked about the margins of the empire. What soon dawned on me was that, well, all of China was interesting, but I was more interested in the South, uh, particularly the Pearl of Delta area, and how that region had served as an interface between the political power in the north and the maritime world in Nanyang, or today's Southeast Asia, and even beyond. Um, what was also 
tricky at that moment is that oh, I realized that you can take a person out of business, but not the business out of a person. So I found topics of business history uh, in particular resonating with me as I studied um, Chinese history. And I could relate uh, to historical actors in trans transnational businesses more. So why well, became a business historian of China? Oh, wonderful, wonderfully interesting. And uh, certainly one of many people, I mean, that seems to be uh, super lucky to be the, directly be able to uh, study with uh, Philip Kuhn during those evening classes, but certainly one of many people that uh, got to the study of modern China through uh, through his works. Um, now, having sort of learned about that a bit, um, obviously your, um, your the particular book that we're discussing today um, deals with, uh, well, it deals with... Uh, Guangzhou or Canton uh, in the late 18th, early 19th century, and uh, with a particular person, uh, Hokua, this sort of famous uh, Chinese merchant at the time. So I wonder whether you could talk a bit about how you actually got to this topic and why you chose this particular topic um, in graduate school and then later also for your first book. Sure, sure. Well, in graduate school, I worked with um, many scholars, um, all of whom were kind enough to allow me plenty of latitude. On my dissertation committee alone, there were experts not just of uh, Chinese history, but also a scholar of Southeast Asia, a specialist in business history, and an international financial historian. So the world is your oyster when it comes to uh, research topics, but less liberating and at the same time terrifying. Um, my advisor, uh, Michael Zoni, he, he is equally at ease uh, tackling topics uh, on China during the Ming Dynasty, as well as writing on 20th century China. So the, the choice of topic is um, is tricky, but I think graduate school gives you a decent process of that when you have to um, look at the specific debates in your field. And what I was most impressed with um, in terms of the debates that uh, we had to look at during that um, whole process was uh, this whole issue of the great divergence, um, how China and, and the West apparently developed on different economic paths. Why am I interested in that? Well, that uh, that topic does not just bring together economics and history, but also bridges Chinese history and make it relevant to world history, which in most cases uh, is basically a study of the West. Um, and that was also at that particular moment so that I understand what appeals to me the most. I appreciate aggregate data, but aggregate data for um, certain buckets that would make um, appropriate units uh, for comparison. But what was more interesting to me was uh, how about the feet on the ground? Um, who were the actual historical actors animating historical developments that aggregated to what we know as economic history? We understand from uh, scholarship that uh, the divide happened maybe around 18th century or so. So who, who were actually um, driving that particular development? Now, back to my interest in the Greater Bay Area um, or the Pearl River Delta, you know, Canton was the trading port in uh, the Asian region for that particular period. So, you know, I decided on the Canton system um, as uh, a lens through which I could explore this whole issue of the Great Divergence. Um, and to, to think about the Canton system, I mean, I can give you the specific dates, you know, how it became the sole port of call in 1757 and it continued on till the Opium War that ushered in the Treaty Port era. But I think it's important for us to understand that as part of China's long-standing expansive uh, trading network, um, of course, that included overland trade along the northern borders, the junk, junk trade in East Asia, as well as exchange with Nanyang um, generated by the Chinese diaspora. Um, 
And addition, in addition, um, in particular for the Canton system, is trade with partners from afar, in particular uh, increasing European maritime traffic in the 18th century. I was certainly not the first to study the China trade of that period. There was a lot of existing scholarship. Um, as we say, you know, all history is contemporary history. So if you were to look at the history or the, the research on the China trade, it started in the early 20th century with some groundbreaking breaking works that cataloged the various Hong merchant families, uh, some by their own descendants. And by the 1980s, as China reopened for business, um, there was renewed interest. The focus at that time, though, was uh, the financially troubled Chinese traders. Uh, and the, the usual explanation for their, um, the, their plight was uh, extraction of the Chang state or incompetence of individual merchants overbearing Western partners. Um, there was another turn, though, um, around the turn of the millennium. The focus shifted to transnational trade. And in particular, um, a scholar, who uh, Paul Van Dyke, who first taught in Macau and then moved to uh, Canton or Guangzhou, he focuses mostly on the 18th century. Um, and that was a period that's a little bit different from my focus. And the reason for that is that the 18th century was a little bit more multilingual. Um, involved more European, continental European languages. I decided, well, if he has uh, done so much on the 18th uh, century, maybe I can move on to the 19th, and, and so I did. Um, and by the 19th century, you can see that continental, Euro continental European powers have waned, um, in, at least in the China trade, largely as a result of uh, the political and uh, military turmoil in continental Europe. Um, just to give you some figures, the rise of the British traders was ex at the expense of continental European rivals. 1775, uh, the British East India Company accounted for less than 22% of total tea exports from Canton, behind the Dutch's uh, uh, 30%, uh, and not substantially ahead of Danes' uh, 17%. Uh, Dalfour to 1793, the British commanded an overwhelming 79%. Of the trade, so you know that, that it was actually the 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 Western context in which um, you know the the Chi the Chinese merchant Hokua that I, I focus on in the book uh, emerged. And what was interesting in his case was that when you have the uh, the waning of continental European powers, you have the arrival of another player. In this case, the newly independent United States. Uh, dispatching enterprising traders, uh, newly liberated from the monopoly of the China trade. And their arrival was timely and uh, facilitated, um, because of the shared language, a smooth transition uh, for Hokua and his China, China traders to uh, work with um, Western traders arriving in Canton. Yeah, great. Fantastic. Yeah, I think... Um... Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about the, I think you have a wonderful graph in, in, in your book that exactly shows how from the 18th century you have sort of more of a mixture of trading partners in Canton and that really then um, uh, moves over to a, 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 an obvious dominance of, of, of the British East India Company. Um, I think you've already wonderfully dived in uh, and sort of uh, taken us in into, into your book and um, uh, and what you're looking at, the sort of dynamics between foreign and Chinese merchants. But I wondered, especially because I think um, uh, many people probably working not, not not too familiar with the Chinese scene or South China at that time might actually not exactly know what the Canton system is. So I was wondering whether you could uh, uh, just talk a bit about, you know, what exactly is the Canton system? Why was 
Chinese trade with uh, with the West uh, focused um, on uh, on Canton and um, who were the main players um, of which Hoka was obviously obviously one of them. But but who were sort of the um, the main groups of, of merchants or economic players that we see uh, in Canton? Sure. Well, the um, the concentration or the aggregation of trade in Canton was more of a balancing act on the part of the chain courts. Um, they needed to figure out how to police the trade, um, to to regulate the trade, yet at the same time not quite uh, destroy the economic dynamism uh, from which they they were generating uh, significant revenues, and it was mounting um, in the 18th century. Uh, and many of the Chinese merchants um, trading in Canton at that time, uh, some, quite a few of the families, were not even from uh, the Guangdong area. Um, so Hokua's family, the, the, the Wu's, um, were not the first. Um, they were preceded by, well, in terms of the uh, more successful cases, the Pans, the Pankikwas, um, who were said to have traveled around Southeast Asia, going as far as Manila, uh, picked up some Spanish and English along the way, and that made it easy for them to partner with continental European merchants in the 18th century. Uh, then you have the arrival of Hokua's family, um, you know, also from outside of, of uh, Guangdong. They were from uh, Fujian. Um, the Wu family uh, was said to have arrived in Canton in the late 17th century, probably as the Qing court uh, was trying to consolidate control of the southern coast and provinces. Um, and in, in, uh, with, with Hokua's emergence in the closing decades of the 18th century, um, you have him, um, along with his brother, starting trade in Canton um, in the early 19, uh, 1790s. Um, and they quickly rose to prominence, uh, so much so that by 1798, um, they, their family represented 18% of the British East India Company's business. And when his brother died in 1801, Hopa became the uh, assumed total control of the family's business. And that was when the Pons and some of the other leading players were exiting the business. And hence, Hopa and his firm became basically the, the monopolist in the, the, the last decades of uh, the Canton system in terms of China's export of tea um, to the Western world. Yeah, I think that's the, uh, yeah, I'm fascinated. I think I think the um, yeah, that's important to note. So the the commodities we are sort of talking about are, um, in your case, particularly tea, but of course then opium comes in sort of as a as a remedy because the Westerners don't really uh, have anything else. You know, they have furs and cotton and somewhat, but they don't have anything else quite as that uh, is quite as sought out by the Chinese as uh, as, as as the Westerners want tea, and therefore they uh, switch. Um, uh, they bring in opium then. Um, so, sort of the next point that I that I really found interesting was um, that you describe in, in quite a bit of detail, particularly in, in the second chapter of your book, the relationship that um, Hoka sort of, or, or the Hoka firm basically builds up with the British East India Company mm-hmm. uh, and the ways in which, I mean, as you say, obviously it became, uh, they became sort of an important uh, trading partner for the East India Company. Um, but in the chapter, you also um, sort of um, uh, describe how uh, how they how Hoka then sort of starts to actually finance uh, the East India Company, and then that way builds some kind of leverage over them. So I wonder whether you can talk a bit more about what was the relationship between Hoka, this Chinese merchant, and the British East India Company. Um, what was sort of the power relationship, and how did Hoka try to manage this particular relationship? 
Mm -hmm. Well, they were certainly very uh, symbiotic um, during that period. Um, and that relationship grew over time and is certainly built on the material exchange that um, came to be in the Canton trade. You're, you're certainly right to say that um, uh, the Western traders were trying to balance things off by having something to import um, into China. Um, I think it's also quite interesting to, to note that um, tea became such a global commodity. I'm not sure we know yet uh, why that's the case or how that came about. Um, of course, it certainly helps to have a certain addictive quality to it that you can have a recurring um, annual trade that uh, you need to go back to Canton for because at that moment you could only source tea from China. And it's not for the lack of trying um, that uh, they, um, the, the British and then the Americans um, uh, all then uh, decided on opium at the end, which was yet another um, addictive substance for, uh, for sure, uh, with a um, lot more harmful effects on the body. Uh, but before that, they, they tried various things. Um, in uh, the British case, they sent in woolens. Um, because of uh, the, the the amounts that they produced in um, England, um, and in the British in the American case, uh, they tried all sorts of things. Uh, they tried fur for a while. Which, um, living in Hong Kong, I am constantly reminded of all these uh, rich uh, ladies trying to put on some fur on Chinese New Year on the two days when the temperature drops below I don't know twenty degrees Celsius. Um, so that didn't quite work. And for a while, they were trying to look for uh, comparable um, commodities as well. Uh, the Americans found what they, they thought was ginseng in America to, to complement what uh, people uh, found to be quite scarce um, in China. But then, as we know, American ginseng isn't quite the same as Korean or Manchurian ginseng, and that didn't quite work. Um, but before opium, though, uh, what seemed to have worked, and that's something that I think uh, we have largely overlooked, was that uh, silver in and of itself was also a commodity that's traded. Uh, we tend to flatten silver to just the weight that was transported from one place to another. But then that was also a commodity that um, had its own exchange rates or, or prices as well, uh, because they were not all create, created equal. Uh, British uh, um, uh, Chinese tail is not quite the same as a Spanish um, silver coin. And even for that, different brands, different mints um, had different prices, and there was a vibrant market for that in Canton and beyond. So um, that was the context in which um, Hokwa was working with the British East India Company. Uh, tea was the commodity that underwrote the um, recurring arrival of the British and other Western merchants into Canton. Uh, but then they were struggling to figure out the other side of the trade. And when opium became the obvious choice for basically uh, the commodity to complete the circuit, um, it was a tricky business. Um, not all merchants were allowed to, well, could openly trade in opium. Well, no one could, but uh, certain people face uh, heavier fines, like uh, the Hong merchants, the Hokwas, and, and his uh, Chinese compatriots. Um, and in, on the British side, you have the emergence of the private traders as well, doing that part of the business. So you can you can see how messy the situation was uh, that Hokwa could well needed to rely on um, the dominance of uh, British East India Company to come back year in and year out to buy tea from him, while at the same time trying to circumvent uh, British hegemony. And in that case, it was the arrival of the Americans. But then the Americans were not quite the same as the British. 
um, the British East India Company was a well-oiled machinery. So that's why when you look at their uh, business records, you, you see their formulaic entry scripted on nice, heavy paper. The Americans, new arrivals, um, so you see more of their uh, business records, but mostly personal letters penned on flimsy paper written front and back sideways. Um, the hardship of uh, the merchants spending time in a faraway land to earn what they call a competence um, for the trip back home. And it was uh, Hoqua's leverage of the Americans that helped him create at least some sort of um, a balance with the British at that time. And the way he did that was by consigning tea to um, America. So the dynamics of the trade was totally different. With the British, um, he had uh, basically a contract contractual amount that he delivered to them at a fixed price. With the Americans, he sent probably not the um, uh, the first quality, the, the top quality of tea, uh, but boatloads of it to America, where his partners would then uh, sell for him at the prevailing market prices uh, to the American market. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, um, uh, and I think I mean, and that's that's also where uh, the whole uh, you know, Hoqua tea brand even uh, even comes from. Then I think um, um, that some people might be familiar with. Um, but as you sort of brought up the Americans now, um, I think what what is really f- absolutely interesting in your book is the the relationship that you obviously described that is sort of built up uh, between particular American traders uh, and uh, and the House of Hoqua. And I mean, you particularly talk about um, one individual that is uh, John Perkins Cushing and Perkins and Co. And of course, also the Forbes family. So I was wondering whether you could talk a bit more, um, not just about their business relationship, but also about the personal relationship that obviously um, that obviously existed. Because it it was not the case that Hoqua just sort of did business with any American traders, but he had a very particular uh, sort of partnership that he struck with a with few select people on the American side. So I wonder whether whether you could talk a bit more about that. Sure, sure. Well, um, Cushing and also um, the Forbes were certainly instrumental in uh, Hoqua's business plan. Um, Maybe a word on the transition, though. I mean, um, he was trying to get out from under the uh, British control. Um, And how did he do it? I mean, you you cannot just hire a British linguist to, to help translate for you. Um, and it's because the Americans spoke basically the same language as the British that facilitated that particular um, transition. Um, Hoqua didn't speak English. He speak what was, con- was called pidgin. And uh, from some of the uh, documents that I've gathered on uh, the Forbes, you, you know, we know that pidgin actually is basically a corrupt well, form of saying business. Um, and when I read that, I, I could only picture an old grandma in uh, Hong Kong or in this part of the world trying to uh, you try to teach them to say the word um, uh, business and uh, pigeon might might be uh, what you would get. Um, so they spoke pigeon. In, in other words, they spoke um, business. And what's interesting, though, that uh, in that case is that, well, they didn't need to speak standard English. Um, There's nothing that uh, needed to be so standard about that so long as you can get your point across. And so you can see a a sense of priority of what is uh, what is important to them. So in that particular period of trade, um, that that was a very peculiar feature. Um, And in the case of Hokwa, what was uh, what was crucial to his success was that he basically had by his side either John Perkins Cushing's or uh, one of the Forbes brothers in Canton uh, for much of the period, or actually for 
all the the whole period um, leading up to the Opium War. So there was a continuous chain of trusted um, the confidants that he had by his side, uh, who was working with someone else um, uh, on the American side of the world, um, dealing in tea and reporting back uh, to Canton of the uh, conditions, not just of the tea market, but also the financial market, you know, what, what you can get for bills of exchange at the one particular place or silver in a, a different place. Um, and that underwrote uh, the business success of Hokwa during his lifetime. And as I continued in the rest of the book, even past his lifetime, because that's the relationship that um, facilitated capital exchange back to Canton all the way to uh, 18, the 1890s. Now, it was not really for uh, the lack of trying that Hokwa um, focused on just one particular family or one, one group of cousins. Um, before that, Hokwa traded with quite a few other American merchants. Um, and some of them, because of the difficulties uh, in Canton and also back home, uh, absconded back to the U.S. And that was actually an interesting episode because it tells you how, well, before the emergence of an international um, court of arbitration, um, Hokwa did resort to some of the U.S. courts to see if he could uh, recoup some of the money that he his, uh, his debtors actually carry with them back to the U.S. Uh, but then he and his, uh, his um, trusted advisors, I think at that time was Cushing, decided not to go after the bankrupt uh, debtors rel- relentlessly. In, in other words, not to throw good money after bad. So that's also a reminder that um, you know, trusted advisors are important to you. Um, legal regimes, sure. But legal channels uh, was just a useful resource and not necessarily a prime consideration. In essence, uh, legal remedies was a last resort. You need personal relations to to get um, the business to to function the way it did. Yeah, and I think that speaks actually to I think a larger point that I really got from uh, when reading the book is that um, obviously, particularly in Chinese business history, there has been quite a lot of um, research on sort of looking into the long tradition of contracts in China and trying to sort of figure out. Um, well, first of all, uh, how these contracts exactly functioned in a business uh, context, uh, but also sort of trying to see whether whether or not this might be, you know, the, the way that contracts were used and compared to the West, whether uh, that might be um, might be able to help us explain a bit more about the divergent economic development in the West and China. But I think from your book, what, what I found uh, was really uh, interesting was that you contrast this very much with... Um, um, with personal trust and make very clearly the point that yes, you have these legal institutions, you have business institutions that are structured in a certain way, but in the end, sort of having, so building up this personal trust between the different business partners across the world uh, and um, maintaining it, that is really, uh, really the key. So I wonder whether you could, um, you know, when we, in terms of how you describe these sort of global trading networks, whether you could talk a bit about, um, or discuss a bit what what the role of personal trust in all of that uh, mm-hmm. really played. Yeah, personal trust um, seems uh, to be a term that people would find a little bit um, nebulous. You know, just like you know, what is culture? Uh, but you know, I think it's actually not that different from the way we talk about credit now. Um, you know, we, maybe we we have made we have made it to uh, it's turned into more of an ossified form of uh, giving your credit rating. But then credit just is trust among the various partners. And what is uh, the mechanism of, of policing that credit system? I think is the most important. 
um, back to the case of Hokwa, as we mentioned just now, is the constant presence of someone uh, representing the other side of your alliance sitting by your side. I mean, you're not hosting that person hostage, but then that's a constant way of uh, reporting back to you what is going on to the extent possible, uh, because uh, letter exchange took time at that um, in that particular period. But this um, constant update, uh, this sense of trust that you develop um, with individuals and by extension to their relatives is, is important. And I think a lot of times we uh, tend to reduce it to uh, people of common ethnicities or uh, uh, religious backgrounds. Um, those are important. Uh, to the extent that it created um, uh, chances of uh, recurring interactions, uh, constant interactions. But then if you can do it and function in a different way, well, you can, you can make friends uh, not necessarily of your same ethnicity or religion. And in this case, I guess they, have the, they shared um, belief in uh, profit-making, um, and that, uh, that helped Hopar and his American partners um, function for decades ahead of the opium war and beyond. Um, in a way, that's a little bit different from his interactions with the East India Company. Um, that was uh, that was uh, a well-established institution, um, and uh, he needed to figure out how to outsmart them financially. In the case of the Americans, it's the constant assessment of risk that he was undertaking, uh, either uh, because of the credit of his American partners or the risk of um, uh, price fluctuations as tea was getting shipped to America. Um, when the world was that fluid, I think that sense of trust was just all the more important. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one point that you just made um, is very important that we sort of pull out this, uh, because I think there's still very much this idea, you know, Western traders, rational sort of kind of uh, uh, individuals that use contracts and so on to do business. And then, as you say, you have sort of, it's it's almost as if we connect personal trust to certain ethnicities and saying that, you know, the Chinese use, use personal trust. But obviously, as you show in the book, I think very um, convincingly that actually, uh, in particular, uh, you know, in these sort of transnational exchanges, that, that personal trust um, becomes really important. I mean, I think, and I think there's one point in there that I, I, I really would ask you to talk a bit uh, more about, and that is um, the use of portraits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hokua sort of, even though he himself never actually left China, but his portrait certainly uh, did. And uh, sort of the way, you know, I, I just thought it was um, wonderfully interesting the way that he used his own portraits to sort of be omnipresent in a sense and and, and, and sort of maintain a, uh, a, a, a relationship to the, um, to the Americans. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, uh, I wonder whether you could discuss a bit more so how you came to sort of focus and discuss this at some length in the in the book. Uh, I, I guess the uh, the genesis of that is be, uh, is the um, the study of these uh, export paintings uh, by our art histor- uh, friends in art history, um, and I find that to be quite interesting. Uh, probably because of my business background, I felt that wow, that's basically brand making. Um, in the case of Hokua, uh, you're right uh, to say that uh, he projected this omnipresence um, among his trusted. Um, partners uh, when they returned to America with that portrait. But then he did that even beyond that circle um, as, as his uh, portrait circulated um, on both sides of the Atlantic uh, with other potential business partners as well. Actually, I found um, a couple of them in India uh, because in, that was 
part of the um, network for trade. And so, you know, you just need to project your presence uh, far and wide. And in this case, without leaving um, Canton, that's uh, that, that was uh, that was quite ingenious. So um, one can say that before there was the Marlboro Man or the uh, or uh, the Colonel in Kentucky Fried Chicken or even the Apple and Apple. Um, you have you have this brand um, of Hokwar and uh, maybe even more powerful than some of the more modern brands because there was that personal connection that um, this particular brand image signified for um, uh, the various partners and uh, prospective um, um, allies that he could work with. Another part that I think I might have mentioned in the book but not as forcefully is um, his signature as well. Uh, we talked about um, contracts. A contract is no good unless you sign it and you execute it in a in a particular form. And again, you, you if you have to look back at that period of transnational exchange in the early nineteenth century in Canton, well, what is proper form then? Uh, how do you even sign your name? And in the case of the Hong merchants, you you have some insisting on the old Chinese way of a chop, a seal, um, and then uh, maybe a certain scribble with a, a brush. Um, and then on the side of the Western traders, maybe the regular signature with a pen. Um, it is not uncommon for us to see in surviving documents from that period, Hokwa's signature spelled out his name um, as is written in some of the contracts, um, H-O-U-Q-U-A, um, all painted with his brush, this Chinese brush signed that way. I guess it takes a little bit of guts to do that. I mean, I'm not sure if I would sign my name on a document uh, in a foreign language, in a foreign, uh, my name in a foreign language as well. Um, but then, well, when you when you do the risk assessment, um, you, you can see how he assessed the, the contents of the document. And well, if I were to sign my name in English, you take it to your US court of law, I certainly would make good on it, but it's not really anything that is uh, different from the way um, a Chinese uh, contract was supposed to work in China. So you have this particular uh, transnational dimension of the story. And uh, in the case of his signature, it was even um, uh, more interesting than, than the portrait itself, because uh, that intersects with this whole notion of a legal document and the, and the uh, criticality of one signature on a piece of paper. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, well, I mean, th- th- that seems to be quite, quite, quite a uh... Odd in a sense. I would have also thought that the, the chop would have been more more uh, uh, prevalent still at that time. But uh, certainly, yes, uh, that, that is very, very interesting. Um, I think as we sort of talk about Hokwa, one thing that we should uh, probably, again, particularly for people that might not be that, uh, that familiar with the Canton system, should probably uh, discuss is, uh, I mean, Hokwa was one of the Hong merchants who had sort of the monopoly on, on doing trade with the Westerners in Canton. Uh, but he was obviously quite an exceptional uh, individual. Um, so, uh, I mean, if you were had to sort of compare him to his other colleagues, uh, uh, other Hong merchants, how would you rate him? How would you compare him uh, to them? Because I think that's quite quite important to sort of highlight in a sense. Sure, um, that's uh, the um, usual challenge uh, of the book. You know, how representative was Hokwa, and how should we think about him in the context of the other Hong merchants? Um, the, the simple answer is, I guess, if you um, were to look at the um, uh, popularization of um, personal computers, um, it's tough to not talk about Bill Gates, even though there are a lot of other failed cases of uh, software developers. 
um, you know, similar with um, uh, talking about, say, electric cars or uh, the Internet. You, you have the iconic figures. Now, how would I then understand Hokwa in the context of the other Hong merchants? Um, as I uh, alluded to earlier, there were other successful Hong merchants before him. The challenges were quite different. In the 18th century, not only do you need to figure out how to work with English-speaking people, but then sometimes English-speaking people who did not necessarily get along, and hence your your your, your entree into um, uh, playing one against the other. Um, but then in the 18th century, you need to do it across languages, and the Pans were very successful at that. Uh, by the 19th century, Hokwa is not the only Hong merchant who signed his name um, with a brush in English. Uh, Consequa was another one. Um, and unfortunately, that Hong um, family uh, was not quite as good at assess- assessing risk, um, especially across long distances uh, with uh, multiple partners, and uh, was not as successful financially. Now, how would I think of Hokwa uh, vis-a-vis the other successful Hong merchants? Um, they lived in different periods of time. Uh, to me, the Pans were um, outrageously successful because not only did they make a lot of money, uh, with a lot of uh, difficulties, they managed to ease out of the trade. Uh, in a way, Hokwa never managed to because Hokwa died in 1843. And of course, we know the Opium War happened towards the end of his life. Um, that was a lot more difficult. Uh, and in Hokwa's case, it's also quite um peculiar compared to some of the other merchant families as well, in that he lived a rather long life. So the other merchant families might have had different generations in the trade. Hokwa did, but only alongside of his brother who worked with him for a decade, and he was supposed to be succeeded by um, some of his sons, uh, but then he outlived many of them. He outlived but two of them. Um, so it was basically him running the business uh, alongside his American partners for this whole time. And that relationship uh, de- that he developed with the American partners basically extended this whole idea of a merchant family uh, beyond just your, your natural um, birthrights and, and bonds. Um, so in that sense, I think he was quite a special case as compared, to, uh, as, as compared with some of the other home, uh, merchant families and deserves uh, the study that uh, hopefully um, you know I you know, mine 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 did and uh, giving him credit for his success in uh, the China trade. No, yeah, absolutely. I think one thing to to probably also highlight is certainly. Uh, I mean, I'm not an expert on the Canton system, but I think a lot of the literature um, also talks previous literature rather talks about the Hong merchants rather in a negative light that they were, you know, there were a lot of bankruptcies, many of them were not successful. So I think highlighting a, one of the, you know, that, that this model could, that the Chinese merchants did succeed and did compete and, and cooperate, um, not just from an inferior position, but also from actually from a, from a, you know, with, with a lot of agency with their Western counterparts. I think that's, that's another reason why, um, why this uh, this case is certainly uh, deserves uh, deserves a proper treatment that, that it gets in uh, in uh, in your book certainly. Yeah, um, I think the um, um, the motivation I had in writing the book and um, you know of course I had got against uh, uh, more of a triumphalism type of attitude um, uh, because I I did this research when China was once again um, reemerging as a global power, but then to to write off all 
previous business successes of Chinese merchants was equally wrong. Um, and I, I, I hope that the story of Hokua um, restores some of the balance there. Uh, we need to understand that uh, before the imposition of um, what we now know as international standards, uh, which you know primarily um, uh, products of the West, uh, we need to understand that there was a more dynamic system of exchange, uh, more fluid, uh, in which Chinese were uh, pivotal players. And you know, as, as you as you pointed out, I mean, if Hokua was uh, a capital um, source, even for the East India Company, the British East India Company, um, the balance of power was not quite as lopsided as I think uh, some earlier studies uh, uh, might have uh, suggested. And it's important for us to to un- to to understand the Chinese merchants um, at that particular moment without the lens of a later period. No, no, absolutely. I think that comes out really, really uh, strongly in in your study. Um, just now, you, you you obviously mentioned uh, the Opium War, and I think the first Opium War, and we need to sort of start, that is quite quite a turning point, obviously. I mean, also because uh, Hoko obviously died in 1843, but um, I wonder whether... Yes, you can discuss a bit what difference the Opium War made to the trading networks that Hokua had built up, and also what happens to um, the family business after after Hokua's uh, passing, and then uh, yeah, and that's obviously connected them with the rise of the treaty port system after the first Opium War. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's the uh, that's the challenge of um, doing the humanities as opposed to natural sciences. Um, there's no there's no experiment we could run. There's no control that we could have. Uh, Hokua did die. Um, right when the opium uh, war ended and the Canton system was uh, concluding. Um, so it's tough to separate his, his passing from um, the effect of the change of the system from uh, the Canton-based network to more of a treaty port system. Uh, but as I tried to do in the later part of the book, you can see that even with his son, who is not quite as much of an entrepreneurial spirit um, as Hokua himself, um, the importance of Canton lingered. Uh, partly because of the connections that people built there, uh, partly because where the money was. I mean, Hokua's family did uh, hold on to um, a lot of financial resources, both within the city and beyond. Um, so you can see uh, traders coming back to Canton. As a matter of fact, um, some of the interesting documents showed up because you have the re-arrival of uh, a Forbes cousin in Canton looking up Hokua's son, uh, trying to re-establish contact. And from that context, uh, maybe Hokua's family did not become as much of uh, the driver of the trade, um, directing traffic, steering uh, development. But then uh, they were uh, very um, powerful um, uh, providers of capital um, to some of these uh, Western merchants, the Forbes in particular. Um, hence the uh, discussion I had um, about the um, lingering investments that um, Hokua's family made in Russell & Company and the Forbes. And that continued um, in spite of subsequent uh, struggles, um, the Second Opium War, Taiping Rebellion. And that dissolved actually not because, uh, not only because uh, Hokua's family was facing difficulties, but uh, also because the, the Americans themselves were not having their own uh, financial struggle. And uh, as the Russell and Company enterprise um, dissolved in the 1890s, that was actually um, the, the eventual um, uh, conclusion uh, to that particular partnership, uh, you know, almost five decades after Hokua's death. Um, 
And I think I focus on that story um, to highlight a couple of things. One, uh, perhaps is the more inward-looking or inward-looking, well, inward-looking posture of Hokwa's uh, descendants um, after uh, his death in 1843. Um, and perhaps it is the proliferation of treaty ports. But all these factors did contribute to what we know as the treaty port era. But that did not happen right away. Um, so if we think about fluidity of the exchange before, uh, we also need to uh, reconsider how rigidly we can define the periodization of um, the Canton system versus the treaty port era and how quickly the switch was uh, switched. It was, it was not quite as much uh, of an abrupt um, transformation of the system as I guess we would like to believe. Yeah, interesting. It's, that's, uh, but it's always an interesting juncture in any kind of family business, I guess. The, uh, the um, sort of the, the change over to the next generation and then seeing uh, how the next generation manages to sort of hold on to or, or, or emulate the, the last generation uh, or rather not, or how it, how how, uh, how how they do things differently, and what the consequences are. Um, again, you just touched upon something that I, I think um, uh, we definitely have to discuss at least at some uh, somewhat a bit, and that's like uh, what you discuss in the sixth chapter of your book, and that's what you call the uh, the Swiss bank account, quote unquote, uh, of uh, of Hoqua uh, and his uh, investments in the U.S. Uh, I think that's really something that uh, you know that uh, certainly people working on global trade, but also, also I think, on, on sort of American history uh, in the, you know, early 19th century, probably have, you know, no idea about, but it, it comes out, you know, you wonderfully track sort of uh, Hoqua's investments um, uh, in the U.S., uh, even beyond his death. So I wonder whether you can, yeah, talk a bit about, you know, how did he come to invest uh, some of his money in the U.S.? Who was handling that uh, investment and uh, how did the, the Hoqua family benefit from this? Sure. Well, the genesis of that is actually a boatload of goods that he had shipped um, on consignment um, to America during the Opium War. And uh, originally, Hokwa himself had wanted the money to be repatriated to Canton. But to keep it from the prying eyes of the Qing court, he decided at the end to leave it in America under the care of John Mary uh, Forbes. Um, And that became the basis of what was known as the um, ASI, American Stock Investment, um, that John um, managed for Hokwa and then subsequently his family. Um, I I think before I looked at the details of the transactions, uh, other people have um, noticed uh, this particular um, investment of Hokwa's family, the Wu families, um, in uh, America. Uh, but it's also easy to overblow the um, um, instrumentality thereof, in particular his choice of investment. Um, yes, Hokwa's family did invest in American railroads. Hokwa's family did invest in uh, American government bonds um, at a time when America was having some domestic trouble of its own, um, in, in the same time as uh, the Taiping Rebellion. But then that was not really Hokwa's family's doing. It was uh, Hokwa's trusted um, advisor, John Mary Forbes, investing on behalf of Hokwa and his family, um, basically guarding the assets uh, from the extraction that might have been happening in Canton at that time. And the, as, as trouble um, mounted, um, financial troubles mounted for Hokwa's family, part of the money got repatriated um, and in chunks uh, back to Canton for the maintenance of Hokwa's family. And that was, as I explained, um, decades of, um, of repatriation before it totally wound down. 
Um, how did that work? Well, again, no contracts. Um, it's actually quite interesting how the accounting was all done in Boston. Um, Hoqua's family knew of it. Hoqua's family asked about it every now and then, but there was not an annual report that was written um, that would tally up for you the investments made and the, um, and the market value thereof. Um, I think what underwrote that was one Hoqua's family's uh, personal connection with the Forbes because uh, the, the son was around when John Murray Forbes arrived in Canton for business. Uh, and equally importantly, uh, Hoqua's family's business ties, at least in terms of investment, with Russell and Company, uh, that continued on until the uh, dissolution of Russell and Company itself. So many of these uh, started when Hoqua was around, but um, the ongoing connections was what underwrote this blind trust. And um, of course, uh, we can easily dismiss it as uh, a quirky arrangement or whatnot. But then I'm reminded of all investment days, um, certain certain investment vehicles uh, do not uh, provide the same type of uh, um, reporting um, uh, reports generated on a regular basis uh, to the details that uh, we have taken for granted on um, in, in, in general terms now. And uh, this blind trust, the Swiss account of Hoqua, uh, might have been peculiar at that moment in its transnational setting. But then if we were to appreciate it in the international world of today, maybe not as strange as it sounds at first sight. Yeah, no, that's true. I think there are certainly parallels. But I think one important point that um, that you also highlight is, of course, that this also meant that capital was moved from one legal setting to yet another. Mm-hmm. And you did you do mention uh, you did just mention the the Qing state that, of course, this was one way of diversifying risk and diversifying some of the capital and of the family firm and bringing it basically out of reach. Um, um, of the Qing state, so uh, certainly that 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 uh, was also, I guess, an aspect of of of, of doing this, or an advantage of, of of having some of the capital invested in the in the United States. Uh, yes, that's the advantage of working with uh, business partners uh, who can um, help you in a different jurisdiction. Um, it's certainly the case with the Swiss bank account. Um, is also the case with some of the um, legal disputes that Hoqua's family got into uh, with uh, uh, business uh, business concerns um, from England. Um, so what they did was some foreign shopping um, when it came to legal resolutions, and Hoqua's family uh, for some back payment of rents um, in Canton, decided to take the case to um, Hong Kong, the British colony of Hong Kong. And that's only through the uh, connections they had with the American partners. So uh, in terms of investment, that's an advantage. In terms of legal resolution, that can be an advantage. And I would uh, highlight that as quite a departure from the earlier period, especially when Hoqua decided not to uh, pursue some of the legal cases in um, the U.S., uh, but then later on, when these boundaries were becoming more solid, when the jurisdictional boundaries were becoming more solid, uh, it became a resource in a different way um, as international standards were setting in and uh, jurisdictions were becoming more rigid. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think, yeah, I just think that that's sort of another another important uh, point to sort of highlight. Um I would be remiss if I were not to uh, sort of uh, to, to, to mention one more, I think, great strength of, of, of the book. Um, and that is, of course, the wide range of, of sources that you've used. I think, I mean, if, if you just look at the bibliography, if we look at the footnotes, readers will see that you've sort of traced the uh, the story of Hoqua 
you know, in Chinese archives, even in one archive in India, but in, in a whole range of American archives of different kind of personal collections. So I, uh, I, I wanted, well, first of all, I wanted to highlight this, that this is really sort of a tour de force of all kinds of different primary sources that we can, we can think of that one, one could possibly use for, uh, for this project. But I also wanted to ask you just how you went about sort of locating all these sources and how, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the research in itself must have been quite transnational, obviously, uh, in, in, in going after Hokwa, so to say. Well, that's very kind of you to, uh, to note that. Um, but I, I would have to say, well, it's a stroke of luck that uh, I chance upon these particular archives. Um, the, the locations were quite um, convenient for me, shall we say. Um, I was going to the Baker Library of the Harvard Business School and Massachusetts Historical Society um, basically after class and spent months there uh, looking things up. Um, and then during term breaks, I traveled back to Hong Kong and the Peripheral Delta area to look at the Chinese side of the story. Of course, one cannot forget England. So I spent a couple of summers in London uh, to look at the documents in the British Library and the National Archives in Kew. What's interesting about these sources, um, in addition to others that um, um, scatter in various places, is that we tend to think of business documents uh, to belong to a single genre when they were not. I mean, I, I mentioned how uh, the British records were, you know, more of the um, former lake entries, business entries. Um, you look at the Chinese uh, documents. Um, uh, what I found, uh, they were compiled and printed in genres, not necessarily reflecting their commercial origins. Uh, for example, you have anthologies of um, uh, containing some of these documents, including the um, uh, family, uh, the household division um, in Hokwa's family early on when um, he needed to sort things out with his uh, various brothers. Um, and of course, we have uh, Chinese business organizations structured uh, with the idiom of family association. So, you know, I was looking at genealogies. Whereas in the American case, you have more of these personal documents uh, that would tell you a different side of the story in addition to the numbers. So uh, it's actually fascinating to be looking at these various documents to think about how the different uh, trading partners approached um, this very transnational uh, network of exchange and how they maintained, how they sustained the uh, commercial transactions for, for such a long time. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, but, but again, I, I uh... Absolutely, but again, I think this is this this really needs to be highlighted to uh, sort of collect all these f sources, find them in uh, all these distant places, and then bringing them together. I think uh, certainly for a story, that's always sort of uh, the fun part of the research, or one of the, the the most interesting parts of the research. But still, it should be it should just be highlighted the vast vast array of archives uh, that 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 are coming together uh, in 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 your book. Um, I thought sort of before we close, whether you could at least for, about the book, um, talk a bit about um, how you would situate sort of this case of Hokwa in your book within our sort of larger understanding of, of how, of sort of global trade in, in, in the period you, you are looking at. Because I think you make quite a powerful argument about that, particularly in your conclusion. And I think uh, highlighting that would be good uh, at this point here. Sure. Um, well, I, what I wanted to do in the book was to... Um restore some understanding of uh, Canton as a dynamic um, nexus of trade in that particular period, uh, which it was, and it, um, it served its function for almost a century. Um, and I think that is especially important today as our international, well, that's West-centric standards 
are becoming increasingly insufficient to contain our transnational exchange, especially when China once again assumes uh, center stage in um, in today's environment. Um, so it is uh, it is important for us to understand the fluidity of the system which uh, Canton uh, represented uh, in the absence of uh, an international system that was supposed to regulate everything uh, among the various trading partners. Um, and that what came after Okwa and the Canton system was but a construct uh, fashioned by a certain group of business interests. And that's not the only, that's not necessarily the only option. Um, so in today's uh, environment, we need to acknowledge uh, the interest and the dynamics of different uh, groups and uh, maybe approach with more agility um, uh, today's environment as we negotiate a new course for global business flows. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I think, and uh, yeah, again, you bring this out. I think also what we can learn uh, sort of about global trade today from from the Hokwa story and the Canton system, uh, you bring it out quite uh, quite strongly, in the, particularly in the conclusion. Um, so, uh, John, we've already taken up uh, quite a lot of your time, but I thought before we close, uh, we of course all want to know uh, what you're working on now, now that the book is done. Uh, and uh, you've uh, you've uh, you've you've uh, probably de- you've dealt so much with Hoka. What 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 is your current uh, research or next project uh, on? Oh, thanks for asking. Well, I have uh, continued with the theme of transnational flows in and through the Perovia Delta area, Greater Bay Area, and this time I've moved downstream uh, from Canton or Guangzhou to Hong Kong. And from the 11, from the 19th century to post World War II developments in Hong Kong, and in particular, I'm looking at the development of the commercial aviation industry in Hong Kong. Um, and what I'm finding is that uh, the making of Hong Kong into an international aviation hub was not preordained. It uh, went through many rounds of political developments. Uh, it was uh, was animated by many economic drivers and technological breakthrough. So it is yet another story of the constant rewiring of transnational flows through the uh, the region here in Hong Kong, the Greater Bay Area, Pearl River Delta area, with geopolitical shifts, economic developments, technological advancements, and sometimes unanticipated incursions by such issues as a pandemic, which uh, we are going through right now. So business will continue, people, goods, capital, ideas will continue to flow through this region, but how? Um, Well, hopefully um, this other episode of uh, my historical accounts would give us some clues. Oh, fantastic! Wonderful. That that sounds like a like a really a, a great project, and we certainly all uh, look forward to learning uh, learning more about that uh, in the future. Um, uh, but before we close, I'd like to uh, thank you again for taking the time to uh, talk to me today and uh, for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, so thank you and uh, take care. Thank you for giving me this opportunity, and I welcome feedback and uh, queries from our listeners. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you.